You guys ready to study? Let's dive into it. Here we are. We're uh, doing the Passion of the Christ, part two. If you remember, if you were here last week, you know that we started a new sermon series. And so this is the Passion of the Christ, part two. We're, for the rest of this month, what we're looking at is the Passion of Jesus. Remember, not, not just the Passion in terms of his suffering, but the Passion of Jesus in terms of his heart, in terms of his desire, in terms of his affection. What, what was it that drove him? Well, the passion of the Christ to, was to seek and save the lost. That passion to seek those who are far from him is not only what drove him to the cross at the end of his life, but it's that same passion for lost people that motivated all his interactions throughout his life here on earth. And so we're going to go to Luke chapter 15. Luke 15 for me is one of those chapters that really just embodies the heart of Jesus in a short way. So Luke 15 is where we're studying today. If you remember, Luke 15 opens up before Jesus starts telling the th those three famous parables. It opens up with kind of setting the scene. We've got two contrasting parties, remember? You've got Jesus uh, with his genuine love for people. Jesus who is, who is being um, just kind of like a people magnet for tax collectors and sinners, you remember? And here's Jesus. He's got just a, just a heart for people, no matter how far gone, no matter how broken, no matter how checkered their past or despised by others. Jesus loves these people. But in high contrast, there's another group of people. That's the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders of the day. They were angrily muttering in their self-preservation, their me first, me only mentality regarding God and salvation. These are the, the faithful, I'm sorry, the faithful, the unfaithful shepherds who care more about themselves than the lost sheep that are left out in the cold. But Jesus, Jesus can't just sit on his hands. He, he doesn't just follow suit and, and kind of fall in line with the heartlessness of the religious leaders. No. Why? Because the lost mean way too much to him to do nothing. <laughs> you and I are his passion. Whoever is lost is his passion and seeking the lost and seeking the lost ought to be our passion too amen and the passion of the christ ought to be the passion of his church let's say that again the passion of the christ ought to be the passion of his church and so as we study the second of the luke 15 parables i want us to ask god to clarify in our hearts what that passion should look like in our lives. You know, if, if the passion of the Christ is seek and say the lost should be the passion of the church, what does that actually look like? What does that feel like? What does that sound like? Today, we're going to look at the second parable, the, the parable of the lost coin. It's three short verses, but I would say they're significant verses. Luke 15, verses 8 through 10. Let's read them together. I'm, I'm going to read from the New King James Version today. Let's, let's read. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. It's a really cool story. Yeah, like I said, a short story too. But go ahead, just paint the picture in your mind's eye. We've got a woman of probably a simple estate, you know, lives in a common, 
one room house, probably with a stone floor, no windows, and she has lost a coin. It's a Greek drachma. Um, you know, Bible scholars are kind of uh, uncertain, but they're probable. They're, they guess that it's probably equivalent to a Roman denarius, a day's wage. But, you know, some others would, would suggest that maybe this coin carries a lot more significance to this woman because maybe it's part of her dowry. Whatever the case, what we do know, based on her subsequent actions to find this coin, is that this coin is of extreme value to her. It's, it's, it's hugely important to her. It's, it's irreplaceable. And it must be found. That's the coin. That's the woman. And, you know, I mean, I guess maybe you're saying to yourself, doesn't this sound like the same thing that we studied last week? <laughs> if something is lost, it's found, and then they're happy at the end. Is this the same story or what? Well, sure, yeah. I, I guess you could say, I'll give you that. There are plenty of similarities. But I believe there are differences that reveal another side to the passion of the Christ that you and I need to pay attention to. So let's think about this. In both parables, you know, the parable of the lost sheep that we talked about last week, and then the parable of the lost coin. In both parables, something of value is lost. Before we, we move on from that basic observation, I, I want us to realize that the word lost here in this story is actually a pretty strong word in and of itself. It's not just talking about a situation of not just being in the appropriate place. It's actually talking about being in a situation where you're on the brink of destruction. You know, in Luke chapter 13, Jesus uses this very same word to describe people who aren't repentant. Or, you know, he says, lest you repent and perish. That's how that word is translated. It's not translated as lost, but as perish or perishing. And so here, when we're talking about a sheep that's lost, it's a symbol of someone who is perishing. And when we're talking about a coin that is lost, we're talking about a soul, a person, a precious child of God who is on the brink of destruction. Now, we've got two lost things in both stories, lost sheep, lost coin. But in one story, the sheep is fully aware that it's lost. In the other story, this story, the coin is an inanimate object and has no comprehension that it's lost at all. It's not even aware. It has no clue. And yet they're both, they're both lost. They're both on the brink of destruction. Another difference between the two parables is that while the sheep is wandering far on the hillside, far in the country, this coin is missing, but it's not far at all. This coin is missing in-house. This coin is missing close to home. In other words, the lost coin is in the proximity of the owner, but not the possession of the owner. Now think about the significance of that, what that symbolizes. It, it is possible to be lost, to be perishing, while having every privilege of knowing God right at your fingertips. Kind of an extreme example of this is Judas, the disciple that betrayed Jesus. He was a disciple. He had followed Jesus for years. He was right next to the Son of God, and yet his heart was lost. His, he, he, he perished. Man, whatever the kind of lostness we may experience, whether we're lost far from God or lost right in-house, I want you to know something. Jesus is just as passionate to save and restore. 
whatever, whatever distance or proximity you may experience, Jesus wants to save you. Jesus wants to seek and save your lost soul. And in both parables, again, another similarity, in both parables, uh, that which is lost is actually found, right? We, we, we know that much. But each story presents a distinct emphasis on the finding side of things. For example, I mean, you think about the parable of lost sheep, the emphasis was not so much how the sheep found, or I'm sorry, how the shepherd found the sheep, but on the way that the shepherd brought that found sheep back. Remember, it shouldered, put, put the sheep on his shoulders and brought it back to them. In the parable of the lost coin, what's emphasized is not the bringing back of the coin, but how the coin was found, the process prior to the finding. I want us to pay particular attention to the verbs describing the woman's search process just for a moment here in Luke chapter 15, verse 8. And maybe you're asking, well, man, is this like a grammar Greek moment here? What's going on? Why do we need to pay attention to the verbs? Well, because the woman's search for her coin portrays the God who searches for us. So let's, let's read about this search process once again. It's in verse 8, Luke chapter 15, verse 8. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, here it is, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. And two quick observations here as we're talking about these verbs, okay? First of all, the woman's actions, these, these verbs are both continuous and they're thorough. And I want us to think about what these women's actions say about God and his search for us. And I would say this, Jesus, uh, or when, when Jesus searches for us, he searches continuously. I mean, these verbs, grammatically speaking, they're in the present active indicative. They're in the ongoing sense. So they could be translated like this, does not keep lighting a lamp or keep sweeping the house or keep searching carefully. In other words, the search for the lost is not just a one-time, single-attempt effort, but it's an ongoing, persistent, persevering effort to seek and say, that's who God is. That's Jesus as he's seeking lost people. He searches continuously, but he also searches thoroughly. Did you notice? The woman didn't just use one measure to find her coin. She didn't stop with lighting the lamp. She didn't stop with sweeping the house. She went on to keep searching carefully, meaning she doesn't hold back. And this is what God does for us. God pulls out all the stops. No stone is left unturned, so to speak. I think it's the message translation. It says it like this, or imagine a woman who has 10 coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and scour the house? looking in every nook and cranny until she finds it. Man, I love that depiction. Just, just on her knees, looking carefully. Where in the world is this coin? She's using every measure possible to find the lost coin, that which is of value to her. You know, verse 8 tells us not just the simple fact that God searches, but how God searches, how he searches continuously and how he searches thoroughly. And you know what else? The woman's actions to find her coin. I think these women's actions highlight three specific steps that Jesus takes to find those who are lost, who are perishing, specifically to find those who are on the brink of destruction right in-house. So as we look at the three verbs again, we'll find that they reveal a threefold passion of Jesus. 
Okay, so passion number one, we'll call it that, passion number one of Jesus is to light the lamp for the lost. Jesus wants to light the lamp for those who are lost. Remember, you know, it, it, just kind of thinking throughout Scripture how light is used throughout Scripture. Light, the purpose of light is to dispel darkness, right? Just kind of chase away darkness. Whatever it is that shrouds the whereabouts of the coin, Jesus is going to light a lamp to find that coin. And the metaphor throughout scripture is broadly used. It's that which reveals, right? that which unveils. And oftentimes in the Bible, light is used as a metaphor for truth. The word of God, right? Psalm 119 verse 105, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It's, it's a metaphor for not just the truth in terms of facts, but the truth in terms of God's character. And so in Jesus' ministry, man, did Jesus, in his ministry for the lost, did he light lamps? <laughs> you bet he did. <laughs> Figuratively speaking, yeah, in word and in deed, in both teaching and in healing, Jesus lit the world up with the lamp, with the truth of who God is. He sought to reveal the truth of who God is. He unveiled before our very eyes the heart of God. And like a lamp in a dark place, his message and his ministry dispelled darkness. It, it cast, it, it sent confusion away. It, it tore down errors and misapprehensions of who God is. And if this is how Jesus ministered to seek and save the lost, if, if he lit a lamp, so to speak. How could this apply to our attempts, to our attempts to search for those who may be lost? Is there a lamp that we can use to dispel darkness and the confusion in others' lives? Of course, just as Jesus' word, we can use God's word to light up others' lives, right? Psalm 119 again. This word is not just a lamp to my feet, it's a lamp to our feet. It's a lamp to others' feet. In 2 Peter chapter 119, we looked at that verse a couple of weeks ago. Peter calls us to give heed to the prophetic word. Why? Because it's like a lamp in a dark place. And God's word, God's word gives perspective. God's word gives vision. It gives direction in our lives. And when Peter was using that in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, he, he understood people's desire for some anchor point, right? He, he was talking to believers as, as people who needed to know something that was certain in their lives, who needed a sense of, of, of rock-solid ground to stand on. And in an uncertain world, he pointed them not just to, to you know, charismatic experiences. He pointed them not just to firsthand accounts. He pointed them to the prophetic word of God. Let's read that actually. 2 Peter chapter 119, I don't have it bookmarked, so if you find it before I do, go ahead and say, I found it. 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 19. Actually, I'm going to start a few verses early. This is so valuable. Peter, he's talking to people who want a faith that's like the disciples. People who, who want, you know, th these are believers probably thinking, hey, what's going to happen after the first generation of apostles move on and pass on? And in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, the Bible says, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. In subsequent verses, he describes how he saw Jesus' glory, you know, on the Mount of Transfiguration. But he doesn't point people, you know, if they're wanting a faith that's strong and rock solid, he doesn't point people to these 
amazing experiences, you know, have your own mountaintop experience. Now, that's not what Peter does. Instead, he points them to the word. Notice verse 19. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Man, if you're looking for a lamp to light up other people's darkness, when you notice that other people are, are needing a sense of certainty in their lives, we can bring them God's word. And Isaiah 50 verse 4 is another one that you can write down. That's a promise. It's actually a, a messianic prophecy about Jesus, but I think it's something that, that he wants us to experience as well. He wants his experience to be our experience. Isaiah 50 verse 4 talks about having a tongue or uh, the capacity to speak to people because we have the capacity to listen to God. And it says that those who have a learned tongue can speak a word in season to those who are weary. And as we share the passion of Jesus to light the lamp in our own lives, he'll give us the capacity to bring the word of God to others' hearts and minds, like a word in due season. Man, we can, we can bring promises of God. We can bring the instruction of God's word. We can even bring the warnings of God's word. How? All in due season. This is how we can light the lamp in other people's lives. So that was the, the first passion of Jesus as depicted by the woman searching for her lost coin. It was the passion to light the lamp for the lost. The second passion that we find is Jesus' passion to sweep the house. Jesus has a passion to sweep the house in order to find the lost or to, to cleanse by sweeping. This sweeping, you know, so I should say this, uh, in the parable, the woman is, is really pretty resourceful, <laughs> if, you, if you think about it. She's resourceful in her all-out search. You know, sweeping actually may have been a way to, to sound out the coin's location. You know, if, if her eyes didn't see it, maybe her ears could hear it if she just started moving things around. Maybe it got stuck in a crevice or a crack in the floor. But the verb itself, it communicates more than just the, the motion or the action of sweeping but the function of cleaning. So she's not just kind of shuffling things around. She's actually trying to clean up so she can see more clearly. And this part of the search process, like if this really is a depiction of, of Jesus and his search for the lost, this part of the search process involves, think about this, it involves clearing away dust and debris. Meaning it involves clearing away obstructions that settle over time and negligence. And that, that's, I don't know when the last time you dusted in your, your living room or, or your bedroom, but, but you know that if you neglect that for a while, the dust can kind of, well, we, we don't need to get too, too graphic here, but, but you understand how this goes. Dust and debris, it settles over time. It settles over negligence. So here's this woman. And part of the process of finding the lost involves clearing away that which has settled over time, that which has settled because of negligence. How did Jesus, in his life and ministry, how did Jesus sweep the house, so to speak? And I can think of one very clear time. In Jesus' time, the peculiarities of you know, the religious rounds and rituals had themselves, the rituals themselves had become the main thing while the real needs of people had been put on the back burner. 
And so the dust and debris of misplaced priorities, the dust and debris of neg neglecting people had settled to the point that it was easy to lose sight of the fact that there were lost people to find and minister to. And this bothered Jesus. I mean, it, it kind of made him angry. It even moved him to action that wasn't well received by all. I mean, I'm thinking specifically of the cleansing of the temple, right? When, when he walked up to the temple courts and he heard all the commotion and he realized that those who were in charge of this were more interested in what was going into their pockets rather than the salvation of souls and allowing God's salvation to be experienced in the sanctuary services. Man, this bothered Jesus. So what did Jesus do? Again, he didn't just walk away. He didn't just, you know, just go, ah, whatever will be, will be. No, Jesus swept things clean. He literally moved things around <laughs> so that what was lost and who was lost could be found. Now, I, what does this mean for us in our ministry? I, I don't think we should go into, you know, <laughs> to people's lives and start, you know, turning things over and casting tables around. But... We need to be aware of dust and debris that collects over time and over negligence. I mean, think about this. If we ever get to the point where our typical ways of doing church, our rounds and ceremonies that become, like if, if, if those rounds and ceremonies ever become the main thing and the needs of people become secondary, there is a dust of negligence that settles. And priority for people gets lost. Man, when that happens, friends, we may need to sweep away the clutter of misplaced priorities so that we can pay attention to the lostness of those who are right under our noses. Oh, man, this is, this is kind of sobering stuff, so I want to slow down a little bit and allow you, allow you to chew on this. I've seen it happen. Maybe you've seen it happen too. The church gets up in arms about preserving a particular standard or a particular preference or a carpet color. I don't know. I'm just kind of making things up here, but you, you fill in the blank. A church gets up in arms about preserving this. And in the process, a new believer becomes disappointed. A seeker gets neglected. A young adult wonders if this is worth the investment he or she is made. A coin gets covered in the dust when that happens, when we, when we lose sight and let other things become the main thing. Some of us may know what it's like to even be that coin. Sweeping the house, you know, sharing the passion of Jesus to not just light the lamp, but to also sweep the house. It means being willing to keep the main thing the main thing. Yeah, you know, religious culture, religious customs have their place, but they must never become more important than the people that we're called to serve. You hear that? Never. Well, when you notice the flip-flop of priority, that's when it's time to sweep the house. Why? Because there may be people lost in-house on the brink of destruction because of our misplaced priorities. Man, this is what this woman is revealing about Jesus' passion to seek and save that which is lost. He lights a lamp. He has a passion to light the lamp for the lost. He, he has a passion and a willingness even to sweep things clean, to sweep the house for the lost. 
The third passion of Jesus here is a passion to search carefully, to search with care. You know, a lot of times when we're talking about searching, uh, the first thing that, that comes up in our minds in this tech-driven society is, is a quick Google search, right? Or, hey, let me just ask Siri about this. No, 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 that's not what we're talking about. We're, we're talking about searching. This isn't merely typing in the desired object with, with little effort or pain. It's a search that engages the whole person. It's a search that demands anxious effort. The word here is, in verse 8, is search carefully until she finds it. Carefully. What's really interesting is that this word, <clears throat> excuse me, this word, is used only one time in scripture, and it's right here. It's the only occurrence of this particular form of the word carefully, with great care and anxiety, with great diligence. The only thing that comes close to this adverb carefully is the verb root, which is again only used three times in scripture, two different places, two different passages used three times in scripture. The first is in 1 Timothy, I'm sorry, not the first, but one of them is in 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 5, where Paul is talking to Timothy about appointing elders in the church, elders who would take great care of the church, okay? That's the kind of care we're talking about. It's a, it's a loving, invested type of care. The other use of the verb is in Luke chapter 10, verse 34 and 35. And there's another parable that Jesus is telling. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan, probably the most famous of Jesus' parables. That word care is used to describe the Good Samaritan who took care of the wounded traveler. And then later on in the next verse, uh, so that's in verse 34, and then in verse 35 of Luke 10, uh, the, the Samaritan tells the innkeeper to take the same kind of care for this wounded traveler. Boy, in that parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan, Luke chapter 10, it's a picture of both Jesus and the church that he entrusts wounded travelers to. It's a picture of tender care, the most tender care. <laughs> Think about this just for a minute. Is it possible that as we search for those who are lost in-house, we need to search with not just great anxiety and urgency and diligence, but we need to search with great care, great tenderness. Think just for a moment of those that you know those who, who may be lost in-house. I mean, maybe yourself, when you felt or even now feel like you're in the house but still perishing, still on the brink of destruction. You're covered by the dust of others' negligence, the clutter of misplaced priorities. Man, if that's you today, you need to know something. You need to know that Jesus has a passion to search for you. And his passion to search for you is not just with great effort, but also with great care. He wants to search for you and gently pour oil on the wounds that have been inflicted. Wounds that, that led to being lost and neglected in the first place. And he won't stop until he finds you. Man, that, that's a picture of Jesus. And I tell you what, that's what Jesus' church needs to be. I love how the, how the parable rounds out here at the end in verse 10. 
this beautiful picture of joy. It says, likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. It's a picture of heavenly joy. <laughs> That's what it is, right? You know, the, the woman who rejoices with her neighbors is really just a shadow of the rejoicing that's happening in heaven. By the way, I don't know if you notice this, it's not just the angels who are rejoicing. There's someone who is rejoicing in the angels' presence, right? I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God. Who is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God? <laughs> God himself he is doing cartwheels when his church extends the same kind of passion that Jesus had. The passion to seek and save, not just those who are far and away, but seek and save the lost even in the house. That search should matter to us because it matters so much to the family of heaven, especially to the God of heaven who does cartwheels in the presence of the angels when one that is lost is found. And this is what heaven is all about. Question today is, what are we all about? What are you all about? The passion of the Christ, remember, the passion of the Christ is to be the passion of his church. You know, we have a divine commission to be all about saving the lost. Whether that means going afar upon the mountains, you know, or whether that means searching in the house, lighting lamps, clearing clutter, searching with sensitivity and care to make sure no one slips through the cracks or is neglected. It's not an either or proposition, it's, it's both and. We cannot be content with lostness, whether it's way out there or whether it's right in here. Seeking afar or scouring in house, we must be about our Father's business, just like Jesus, to seek, to save that which is lost. So what are we about? What, are you, what am I about? I'll tell you what I want to be about. I, I don't just want to be about having a nice service or having a nice you know, online worship experience. I don't want to just be about preaching sermons or running this ministry or that ministry or making this is on time or that, or hosting this evangelistic series or that series of meetings. No, I mean, those things are valuable. Yeah, right? That, that's why we do. Those things are necessary, but let's remember this. They're not the goal services, the gatherings, the, what we produce in terms of ministry is not the goal. Those are not the end in themselves. They are the means to an end. Programs are great, but the priority is people. Programs are great, but the priority is people. Those things are in place. Those ministries are in place. Those structures, those rhythms that we have as a church, those are in place for the purpose of seeking and saving the lost. Whether they're wandering far or missing in-house, can we make an agreement together? Let's keep the main thing the main thing. Let, let, let's make it our utmost priority in whatever we are up to as believers individually or as a church family together. Let's keep the main thing the main thing. To seek and save the lost. That is Jesus' passion. Man. Decision time right now. Decision time. How many of you today want to say, yeah, I want Jesus' passion to be my passion too? How many of you just want to say, Lord, I, I confess my carelessness for others, but I pray you would give me a heart 
that beats for the people you've placed in my life. A heart that loves them enough to light the lamp of God's word for them, that loves them enough to sweep the clutter of my misplaced priorities or uh, to, to search with gentle tenderness for others. You want that kind of heart today? How many of you want the joy of heaven? The joy of heaven to be your joy too. You know, the passion of the Christ to be your passion too. I, I want to pray that prayer. If that's your desire, I mean, you don't need to come to the altar or whatever. Just raise your heart to God. As we pray right now, let's pray that his passion would be our passion. Bow your heads. Father in heaven, we confess to you that our heart does not always beat with yours. Lord, as we have just kind of spent some time on these three simple verses, we recognize today what your heart beats or how your heart beats for us. And I thank you, God, for being so thorough in your seeking and searching. I thank you for being so persistent. And Lord, we pray for that kind of love. We pray for power from your Holy Spirit to be the kind of people that can light others' lives with your word. We pray for the courage to sweep when it's necessary, to clear the dust and clutter so that the lost can be found. We pray, God, for the gentleness that comes from your Holy Spirit. I think that's, that's one of the fruit of the Spirit, Lord. We pray for that kind of gentleness to pour oil, to be a healing influence in those that you have entrusted to us, that we would care as you care. Thank you, God, for being who you are, for searching for each and every one of us. We want to be on your team today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.